welcome back for another episode here at Crest Talk. We're your hosts, Jamie Kim, Chloe Lee, and Jamie Freitag. At Crest, we believe everyone deserves support. The Crest app provides personalized support that helps you stress less and accomplish more. If you are new, welcome. We are so glad you're here. We just wanted to reassure you that your hosts are no longer recording the recording studio, and we're all in our separate homes recording this over an audio call. So we're back with another Lennox Hill episode. We are finishing episode seven and eight today, so that's super exciting. Episode seven actually starts out with what looks like a neurosurgery department ugly Christmas sweater contest, and everyone's dressed up. It's so cute. Everyone participated, and they actually FaceTimed Mitch in, and he was kind of like the judge, and it was decided that Langer had ultimately the ugliest sweater, so that was really funny, and I thought that was a really joyous way to start out the episode, and you can tell that this kind of is like a timestamp for when this episode was recorded, so it's around the season of the holidays, so just keep that in mind. Yeah, and that's a great way to keep time um, throughout the whole series they really put an emphasis on you know halloween pride um christmas going to the beach so that's a good way to um kind of get a sense of time with this and um the next scene is dr little richardson who's in a class for um it looks like for parents who are about to give birth um and they're planning out what they want for the birthing process like what they want to wear hospital gown or you know bring your own clothes and she's envisioning you know her own dream birth scenario And I really like how she attended that meeting because I think a lot of doctors at times can kind of look past like all those, you know, tiny personal things that their patients want. So I hope that she can, you know, bring this knowledge back into her practice and, um, you know, help her patients have a great birth. Yeah, she's definitely super prepared, probably because she's an OBGYN. Um, But she also mentions that she's a little bit worried about her labor and she wants to take all the precautions, which is very smart. Um, She actually openly talks to Kevin about this too, about how she's worried about certain things. But I think this class is so great because they can, you know, share these things with other parents and even to the instructor. And so she can fully be ready for her labor. Yeah, to me, it seems really fun. And I feel like it's something that I might do. Um, I think a lot of people think it's stupid or pointless, but in my opinion, it's important to make decisions, even about the little things, because anything can happen. Um, If something goes wrong, you don't want to be like, I don't know what I want, I don't know what to do, or, you know, how I want to do this. So I think it's awesome, you know, to spend time to focus on those things and be as prepared as you can for the unknown. Right. I think it's also just a way to kind of like normalize the birthing process because so many people freak out about it. I mean, understandably, but the more you, I think, confront what is going to happen and all the things that can happen, I think it just normalizes that for yourself and it's less of like a panic moment and it's it's kind of more of like, okay, I've been preparing for this. I've had open conversations about it. We've thought of different scenarios. So I think that's also a really great way to get prepared mentally and emotionally, especially if you're first-time parents. Yeah, definitely. It's just a a really good experience for everyone involved. And in the next scene, Mitch is back. Um, He sounds, you know, really good. He looks really good. And you can tell that he's still 100% himself. And he says coming back to work represents a return to being alive. So you know that he just places so much emphasis on his career and his life. Um, And he's back in the office and he says it's it's really good to be back on on his side of the desk instead of on the patient's side. And what was said was he said that he didn't look in the mirror for a few days after the surgery because he kind of could tell what he looked like. Um, He even said that before he went in for the surgery, like, I'm I'm going to look different. Like, this is going to be my life, you know, going forward. And it's really sad because, like, you know, he he knew that. um, But 
I, I think he looks fine. Um, obviously better than, you know, having a tumor. So I think though this can be quote unquote a minor change because yes, he got rid of the tumor, but just the fact that your face looks different and you're inside of a body that you're not used to can be quite scary. And because um, it was on his face where it's so visible to other people. um, Yeah, that made me really sad when he said that he couldn't look in the mirror because, you know, it's so visible and he knows that people are able to quickly identify it. Um, But, you know, again, he has such a supportive group of people who are telling him, you know, you look great, you look fine. And so that was really nice. Right, exactly. And actually, a new patient is introduced to us after this scene. Her name is Christy. She's only 16 years old, and she has dreams of becoming a doctor, so that's sweet. Um, what happened with her is she actually had a head injury while playing soccer, but this is one of those cases where kind of like a minor injury reveals a bigger issue. So when they were scanning her head, they found um, this huge malformation in her brain. So they decided that her surgery was going to be another awake surgery because they need her to basically be an indication of if they're doing too much or if they can do more to lessen the risk of other complications. And this is a very interesting case because Langer starts talking about how it's so difficult to get surgeries like this approved if you don't have a good third-party payer insurance, especially because this surgery is not considered an emergency. So for Christy, her insurance did not cover it because of that fact. So that's another huge hole, I feel like, in our healthcare. It's something that I just flat out hate. But something amazing about this is that Langer decided to do the surgery and he's not going to get paid a cent for his time working with Christy. And I think that's so amazing. Like, how did you guys react to that? I thought that was really amazing because, you know, maybe this is just me being cynical, but I literally feel like other doctors would turn her down, Um, you know, especially in New York in like the Northeast where the attitude is, you know, not let's all help each other out. Um, So um, it was really great, amazing that Linger, you know, took her on as, you know, kind of pro bono and um, for her insurance company to say that it wasn't an emergency like that, like that doesn't make any sense. Like your insurance covers other chronic conditions. Like why wouldn't it cover a brain malformation? But um it just goes to show you how like how many things wrong with american healthcare there are um but that that point was so moving and he actually said the that humanity empathy that has to drive the decision making first um and you know i'm so glad that he kind of normalized that at least that you know we know at lennox hill um that they can do that yeah i actually had to go back and kind of watch that part again because I was like, there's no way that he's going to do this surgery for free without Mm -hmm. getting paid. Um, And that's so sad because in my head, I was so, I'm like so programmed to think that people are always doing things for money and without money, they're not willing to sacrifice their time and their efforts. But in this hospital, it's so evident that, especially for Dr. Langer, that money isn't everything for him. And that was like so unreal to me. Yeah, but the fact that, honestly, we were all shocked, and especially you, Chloe, you had to do, like, a double take. You were like, wait, did that mm-hmm. actually just happen? I just feel like that's how how rare it is. So I yeah. feel like, honestly, like, acts like this, I wish they were more normalized. Not asking people to do free work all the time. We would all be lying if we say we don't want to feed our own families. But I'm pretty sure there could be a little bit more space with that. But again, it's just a time to really just appreciate and just really embrace that. So I'm really excited to see how her surgery goes forward. We're going to talk about 
um, how Mitch actually comes back. Everyone is so happy to see him. And Mitch and Dr. Lang are actually talking about his stamina and if he'll be able to do all the surgeries that he normally did. Um, and I love how Langer is approaching this. He's like, I don't care if you produce a lower volume. He was like, I don't give a crap about that. So they really do take into consideration what Dr. Mitch can do. And Dr. Mitch is being honest. He's like, I can't do late surgeries. So they're just having an open and honest conversation about that. Um, Dr. Langer also tells Mitch that he should maybe go see a therapist that even he himself has gone before, which shows the importance of um, talking openly about how he felt about the surgery. And though he so desperately wants to go back to a normal life, the truth is it's not going to be 100% normal. And so even going to therapy for his own mental well-being, I think was so important. And I'm really glad that Dr. Langer brought that point up to him and kind of reminded him like, hey, this is okay. This is normal. And we want you to do this if you think that this is going to help you in any way. And going back to um, the young girl Christie's surgery, they actually made the decision to keep her awake. And, you know, she ended up being in a lot of pain. And um, Dr. Langer had to make the hard decision that he cannot operate on a crying child. Um, they could not keep going. But her surgery ends up turning well, and um, Dr. Langer says, God, this job sucks sometimes, doesn't it? Um, but ultimately, Christy has a really good family support system, and you know her family's so big and loves her so much, so she doesn't remember anything after the surgery. She feels a lot better and relieved, um, and she says, I have you forever now. Dr. Langer's such a good doctor, and you could see the relief in the family's eyes, um, because, especially because she's so young, obviously, and she had to go through that whole traumatic experience awake. And yeah, so I'm really glad that she's okay. The next scene, um, Dr. Macri is in the ER and she says that the holidays are painful. It reminds her that humans need support and love and people just need to know that they exist. That's what she said. So um, she meets a patient, uh, he looks pretty young and he says he's a tax accountant um, in, in New York City and he's literally crying and you could tell he's struggling a lot um, emotionally. And he says that he works 50 to 70 hours a week, gets no sleep, his partner had a husband that he didn't know about um, like a bunch of horrible things has happened to him and he says he doesn't get any relief things get worse he lost his appetite um, he doesn't have any family here uh, he's from Mississippi and he's gay so it doesn't really help the situation at all um, but ultimately Macri takes time out of her day and she just you know kind of has to be a therapist to people sometimes and we don't exactly know you know why he's here like you know, if he maybe tried um, to kill himself or something, but it's it's nice to see her kind of take a different role um, in this situation, and that you know nothing particularly you know medical in nature is happening to this patient. It seems more psychiatric, and she deals with it really well. Um, she also talks about how these days therapists are just so quick to or psychiatrists to give out medicine, like three or four different prescriptions. And this is so bad for the people because now they're constantly on higher doses of medication and they're becoming more and more dependent on it. Um, yeah, she says that she feels really helpless and there's only so much she can do because though she's doing her best, she can't ultimately like heal the whole city. And this is the most she can do at this point. But I really do know that this is a huge, huge problem that's going on, especially in New York City, in terms of depression and medication. And I'm really glad that she addressed this in this episode. And then actually, she goes on to see um, another young sickle cell patient who has an abnormality in their blood, causes their cells to sickle. So there's a really low level of oxygen that um, they can carry, and it leads to chronic excruciating pain. So 
he looks like he's always in pain, um, you know, during the whole time that we're talking to him. I, in my opinion, truly believe him because he's very agitated, um, you know, probably because of the constant pain. Um, he's always sick of having to come back to the hospital, you know, and he kind of looked like maybe he could be in high school, so he would have, you know, work or school the next day. Um, and it's it's just really sad because you can tell that he is in so much pain, but Macri says, you know, it's always puts her in a hard place because she doesn't want her patients to get addicted to the pain medications, you know, especially him because he is just so young with this horrible disease, but she tries her best to deal with them. Um, and she only really prescribes what she's comfortable with and gives them a few days at a time until they can, you know, maybe go to a pain um, management center or something. Um, but she ultimately deals with him really well. And yeah, if I ever go into the ER, I want her to be my doctor. <laughs> <laughs> they like because all these physicians are in different areas so it's kind of like you need this go to her you need that go to him yeah. so we definitely if you're listening we definitely have a list for ourselves now yeah um also with the sickle cell patients i remember he said that he doesn't want to go home because he doesn't have any medicine to take care of the pain at home um i i don't know i just felt so frustrated and um i just sensed that urgency about how he felt in his body because like Dr. Macri said, he's in pain 24-7, and even she can't understand or even imagine what that feels like. Um, something that really stood out to me was he actually said this. I don't know if you guys remember this part when he kind of had an argument with her, when he was like, the first words out of your mouth was, I'm sending you home, so it felt like I didn't even matter to you. And he felt like he was unimportant to her when that's definitely not the case. And she wanted to do everything to help him. But because of the pain, he felt like the doctors didn't really care about him. And all they wanted him was to leave. And Dr. Macri just, all she can do was, you know, kind of calm him down and give him the medicine that he needs and kind of stop it there so that he doesn't get even more agitated and even more angry at the situation. And so then Dr. Little Richardson um, is helping a mom through her birth. Um, but it's really hard. The mom is making, you know, a lot of noises that we were taught in, in our doula training that, you know, are kind of associated with being scared um, and not necessarily productive, but it's hard because there are just so many people in the room with her. Um, and eventually it turns out that the baby and mom's heart rates become tachycardic. So ultimately they think it's the best decision to move forward with the C-section um, due to an infection that she had. In between all of the madness that she's dealing with this patient with, um, her friends give her baby gifts. She talks about her mom and her childhood being really good, um, you know, how her mom is super calm. And then she kind of, you know, talks about her patient a little bit. And a quote that she said that was super nice was, I don't want her to feel bad. She should feel good. Like, she doesn't want her to feel bad about having a C-section. She doesn't want her to feel, you know, like, I guess, defeated in a way. Um, I didn't think the patient felt like that, but obviously I saw, you know, just a couple minutes of it. But um, yeah, she's just so thoughtful. And if I ever have a baby, <laughs> sorry. here we go. <laughs> but like speaking of her, she actually talks about her own child. And Dr. Little says she and she said this in previous episodes before she's like, I want I want my child to be a city kid, the diversity. She said she's always felt a little bit isolated because when she grew up, there weren't many African-Americans around her. So that really does something to you. And obviously the amount of diversity in New York City is unquestionable. And she also said something like, they just know how to get around. They just know so much. And I completely agree with that too. So that was just also nice to see her 
um, kind of plan out what she wanted for her child. Obviously, we know at this point she's going to move back to California with Kevin. So that's why she's a little bit, I guess, you know, it's not according to what she preferred, but she did do it for Kevin because he gave up so much for her. But yeah, it was really just nice to see her reasoning for that because New York City is where she spent so much of her time. So yeah, that was cool. Yeah, and this area that they're moving to in California, she mentioned was an area where there are not a lot of African-American. And she said that she doesn't want her daughter to go through what she went through, where she felt so isolated in her childhood. Um, And, you know, there's just something really special about um, seeing people who kind of look like you. And she also said that, you know, even with African-Americans, there is a way of, there's like a different definition of beauty and lifestyle and she wants her daughter to know that those things are all beautiful and that she wants to raise her daughter in a place where those things are all accepted so she has a little bit of um worries there but um she's you know trying to make the best of it and she just wants to put that out there that she doesn't want her daughter to go through what she went through Right. I definitely understand that, too. And when she said that the thing about, like, the different standards of beauty, I really felt that. Mm -hmm. Um, That's definitely so hard. And I feel like even us personally, we've also struggled with that, too. So that is something that it's different when you go through it. And then you have to think about your child having to go through it. So I can definitely see her worry there. But actually, while we're on this topic, Dr. Macri is kind of the opposite. And she said she doesn't want to raise her son in the city. Um, So it's kind of interesting. They obviously for different reasons, but just to see their varying opinions. And the reason why Dr. Macri doesn't really prefer this for her son is because she's seen, you know, all like the toxicity and the drugs and the trauma that people go through in such a fast paced, honestly, harsh city. And I kind of, I really understand where she's coming from. For me, like growing up in the city, it's, I saw a lot of things that I wish I didn't see when I was like 13, 14 years old. Um, it kind of helped me, I guess, mature quickly in a way. I had to grow some tough skin dealing with different types of people and dealing with different types of situations, some more dangerous than others. But it definitely does put a stress on you. And my eyes have definitely been opened pretty early on. Um, I became a master at kind of maneuvering my way through the city safely. And it's crazy because I would see middle schoolers on the subway with me they're wearing their cute little uniforms they look like babies so i'm talking like nine-year-olds 10 11 12 they're just taking the subway by themselves commuting throughout the city and i couldn't even imagine that so i guess like compared to a more suburbs place where i know my friends have even just been driven to school until high school and all throughout high school so it's definitely a different vibe um dr little also talked about her mother who she really respects and she mentioned this before about how she grew up in such a loving and supportive home and she said that her mother never reacted in anger and that whenever her mother was angry she'll just walk away from the situation and come back to punish her or discipline her so that she knew that you know she was thinking clearly and that her emotions wouldn't get to her Um, which I thought was so, so, so important because a lot of parents just lash out on their children, which can lead to different levels of, you know, scarring and trauma in their lives. Um, Because, you know, when parents are so angry, if anyone's so angry, um, they can do sometimes irrational things and do things that they have no control over. So Dr. Little grew up with her mother who was so wise and gentle and knew not to do that to her child. And she wants to carry that for her own child when she is raising her daughter. And then something exciting really happens at the end of this episode, episode seven, um, Dr. Little's water breaks. So 
Um, her mentor, as we mentioned her before, Dr. Johnson, tells the other resident that they're just going to treat her like any other patient. Um, it's funny because the resident is her classmate, um, and, you know, they seem like they're pretty good friends. Um, and it's, it's just funny to think about because she's been doing this as a career, you know, the past eight years. She's almost at the end of her residency, and she says, what do I do? <laughs> so um, she ends up bringing her own labor gown, which is like super nice. Um, I'm really glad that she did that. And you could see her, you know, moving around the room and she just goes up to the machines and starts pushing buttons and stuff because, you know, she works there and um, she knows what she's looking at. But ultimately she deals, you know, with this situation with so much grace. And um, yeah, I'm really excited for her and her child. Yeah, I thought that was so funny and honestly so adorable that she brought her own labor gown, like she's ready. And it was like such a beautiful like halter top and it was so functional with all the different ways that she can use for her labor. Um, and, the, you know, the nurses were saying how they're going to treat her like any other patient. And yeah, I, I'm just really excited for this next episode when she actually gives birth and see, you know, what her beautiful daughter looks like. And speaking of Dr. Little and how excited we are to meet her baby, that's actually exactly how episode eight opens up. It's just Dr. Little and Kevin, and it's so funny because she's in her beautiful gown that she bought her for herself, and she's just standing at like the main desk with the other nurses and doctors just chatting because she is really one of them. And they're standing there complimenting her on her labor gown, which I personally love. It looks like a halter top, but it has all these like holes in it. And she's like, yeah, you can, there's a lot of access for back massages and monitors and everyone's saying how good she looks in it. And I love that too. Um, it made me kind of want to get one for myself. And it's something that I never, I guess, personally thought of for the future of whatever happens. So I thought that was a really good idea. And it's kind of birth isn't, you're not sick you're just giving birth. So it's great to be comfortable and feel like you're in your own skin. Um, so yeah, I thought that was really fun. Yeah, I agree. This part of medicine is like so different in that, yeah, you're not sick. You know, obviously most of the time um, women go through labor perfectly fine, but I love how she knows exactly what she wants for um, her stay at the hospital because a lot of women get to that point of active labor and just wing it, which is kind of sad. Um, and you know, the nurses are so supportive of her and I'm really glad that she let them film this part because it's so personal, but I'm really glad that she did because it ended up being like a really beautiful birth. We then move on to what looks like a meeting with the neurosurgery department where they're reviewing how the year went, especially with Mitch not being able to work. And this is a quote from Dr. Langer. He says, we are structured so that nobody's personal volume is directly related to their income. Um, in a lot of other departments, the incentives are directly related um, to their case. But here in this hospital, it's that everybody works as a team for incentives. And I don't know, I just felt like this was such a huge secret to success because it eliminates that competition aspect with each other. And the only thing that they're trying to um, battle is the illness itself. And so the doctors are not really doing it all for the money but they're doing it because they genuinely care and they want to, um, you know, serve as best as they can. And I think that that's a great way to prevent physician burnout because, um, you know, not having to push yourself to do volume, 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 and, you know, more taking your time with each case and, and really working to cure their condition um, is so important. And, you know, obviously 
all of the doctors in um, Lenox Hill work super hard, but you can kind of tell that, not that they're laid back, but they're more probably calm than they would be if it was about that competition, was about, you know, their um, numbers and stats. And there's actually a quote from Dr. Langer, and he says, there's a tremendous degree of greed from doctors, the patients, the world. It is all driven by culture. Using that for what it's worth, not using it as your North Star is the challenge. And I think they all do that super, super well um, in this hospital. Right. And as much as I love that idea, Dr. Langer brings up a really true point and he says it ultimately comes down to volume. You bring in more cases, so then the hospitals benefit more. But then the trouble is that over time, they become so successful that they outstrip the resources, which just seems like one vicious cycle. We talked about already how this department is struggling just to get, I think, like a second OR just designated for neurosurgery. They need more office space. And he says something that really struck me. He says that how you're measured in your own mind as a doctor versus how you're measured by the business of medicine are totally different things. And we talk about this a lot, how... A lot of hospitals are owned by businesses, not necessarily all like a physician board. There is a lot of stress with like the patient turnover and how that really affects quality of care. But we see the amount of personal emotion and commitment that all of the physicians um, mentioned in this docuseries, how they connect with their patients. And I think that really does boost the quality of care and overall could really impact whether someone lives or dies. We then see Dr. Macri back in the emergency room, and she encounters a patient who has asthma, but she can't get an inhaler because um, CVS is not covered by her insurance, which is so crazy. And it's such a huge issue because in the ER, there are so many people who have nowhere to go and they're here for an emergency. And, you know, they obviously don't plan these things. But again, with the insurance issue, it's such a huge roadblock because the pharmacists and the hospitals do not accept their insurances, um, and they can't afford the medication that is needed for them to cope or survive. I don't know. I just didn't realize how big of an issue insurance was until the past two episodes where people literally have to sit in their homes in pain because they have to pay like hundreds or even thousands of dollars for very small doses that they have to continuously get over and over again. Yeah, and it's funny because um, the pharmacy that she mentions is CVS. And even in my own life, I've had like horrible experiences with them um, because of my insurance. And they'll always look to charge you um, the most amount of money, um, which is really sad. But anyways, um, this woman in particular that they were talking about, she really needed the inhaler. Um, And so that's just a really hard thing because, um, you know, these doctors are trying to do the best things for their patients. And ultimately, it comes down to something so dumb like that. Exactly. I think it makes us all really livid because it, it it was preventative. Like you just had to give her what she needed and for it to take weeks and weeks just to go through and like contemplate if she needs it or not. Like that's crazy. And it is also revealed to us that they have a new spine recruit who is um, apparently the great grandson of L. Frank Baum, the person who wrote The Wizard of Oz. So they kind of have a little light moment with that. Um, and this man will be which is junior, like his replacement. So it gives him, you know, some relief, which I was kind of worried about because he did jump, you know, right into it um, after his surgery. And Bookvar is at a vascular meeting with, you know, obviously a lot of doctors in the room and he's asking for everyone for insight on Chris's scan. Just um, to remind you, Chris is the man who was on a clinical trial with a glioblastoma and he can't tell if the thing on the scan is tumor or not, or just, um, he calls it vascular congestion. 
which um, he explains as like kind of like inflammation. It's just so strange because it seems like Chris can understand most of what they're saying. It's just that his speech is really, um, really impaired. But I really liked how they did that with so many doctors in one room trying to think about one case together. You could tell that they like really care about making him better and, um, you know, trying to save his life. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. It's kind of like one of those scenes that you do see in any medical drama or show. But I think just physically seeing everyone there looking at the scans together, that was very encouraging. And you see kind of like this push and pull between Langer and Bookfar, actually. And you can tell, though, it's just because they have the ultimate goal of just wanting to figure this case out. It is hard. And even Dr. Bookfar, who we know how amazing he is, can't even figure it out. So at this point, it did make me um, really worried for Chris, especially with his history and what's been going on recently and all of the um, unfortunate news he's been getting. We're then introduced to a new patient. His name is Phil, and he hit his head while he was bodyboarding on the beach. And this is funny because Dr. Langer was actually there at the moment of the accident. So he was there to help, I guess, with the immediate um, things that had to be taken care of. And Dr. Langer is explaining that they have to decompress the spinal cord. And it's kind of like this huge elaborate surgery. And he's just joking. He's like, so what's a neurosurgeon going to do at the beach? And I thought that was kind of like a once in a lifetime occurrence to be there at the scene of someone who is hurt and then to be the same exact person who's treating him. I thought that was really funny. Yeah, definitely. He's so fortunate to have a neurosurgeon who kind of identified the issue and led him to a, to a hospital so that he can, you know, do surgery on him. I thought that was like <laughs> such a unique opportunity. And another thing that I thought about was how crazy it is to figure out what to do with the surgery. Um, it almost takes creative thinking and just the way you have to kind of use all your knowledge and design almost how you're going to perform the surgery. Um, with brain surgery, you know, there's never really one way to do something. And you really do need that creativity to find different ways to cater around the patient's very specific case. Yeah, definitely. I really liked how he um, kind of broke it down for the viewers and about how um, he was going to have to go through with the surgery. And you're right, it's almost uh, you know, it takes like kind of a creative mind, you know, obviously a medical mind, but in terms of like how he decided to go about the case, which is really interesting to see. And so um, switching to Dr. Little, who at the end of last um, episode was about to um, be in labor. She um, broke her water and she says that she's going to do, um, well, try to do an unmedicated delivery. And she also says she can't give any reason in particular why it's just a personal decision to her, which I completely understand. And she says, you shouldn't face judgment no matter what route you choose. And that's so true because, um, especially for Dr. Little, I was thinking um, she helps so many women through um, their labor process. So she probably wants to, you know, maybe feel exactly what it feels like. And it's just more like kind of necessary for her to um, have that experience. Right. And having an unmedicated delivery, which I 100% support, but I also 100% understand that it's freaking hard. So I love how she brought up that no woman should face judgment for how they got there. The end goal of successfully birthing a child. Um, I don't think anyone has a right to say, oh, that was, you know, you were a little weak or that's the easy route. 
she says that there's always some guilt that people have when they say, I got an epidural, which I definitely do feel just from all the experiences I've had with all the women in my life. And as a doula, it's just kind of like that vibe that you get. And it's ridiculous, but definitely that does exist, unfortunately. I actually didn't know that there was a judgment type of thing around this situation. So I asked myself, like, why don't women want to get epidural um i did a little bit of googling and it said that it may make your pushing a little bit more difficult and for some women um they find that there is an increase of needing interventions such as forceps or medication or even a c-section with epidural so maybe that's why but i honestly i didn't even know there was like a stigma around it Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, um, I think it's more of like, oh, like you couldn't handle the pain, but they Mm -hmm. say the childbirth is the most painful thing in your entire life. And if there's modern medicine that can alleviate, you know, most, if not all of that pain, um, yeah, you go girl. So, (laughs) right. And I know a big reason why a lot of women do it too, is that they, I know one mom that I was talking to while I was helping her, she was like, I didn't want to, but the pain is so unbearable. And she said it was really, you know, making her hysterical. It's so difficult. So the reason why she opted for an epidural, she said she wanted to be present for the birth. She didn't want to be panicking or just focusing on the pain. She wanted to focus on the baby. She wanted to focus on the process. So it doesn't even have to do with anything like just physical. It has to do with people who or moms who want to be present. She said she felt like she couldn't really mentally be there or be aware because of how distracted she was by everything else going on in her body. So that I I was really happy for her that she was able to come to that conclusion and be okay with her own decision. Dr. Little's birth um, in particular for me was like really beautiful because she was, you know, kind of chanting, making low groans under her contractions, which was like so nice to see. Kevin was so involved and Um, For me, it was so nice to see him, like, he was so smiley and happy, like, in almost every single scene that um, the camera panned to him. um, He is using stuff that he learned from his class um, to help her and, like, be involved actively in in her labor, and he was just awesome throughout this whole experience. Yeah, I love the part where they were doing the low groans and the low chanting. Honestly, when I was first learning this technique, I was like, what is this? But it replaces all of that, you know, the high-pitched, panicky, like, <laughs> because that it, it's painful. To replace that with these low groans is to, it's really to, you know, conserve energy and to calm yourself down and just breathe through the pain. So you're kind of, I guess, um, focusing the energy in your breath and in your tone and just to blow the pain away. So I love that he was doing it together with her. I thought it was so sweet. It's not um i don't see it as much as i would like to so just stuff like that really gets to me and it was really nice that he was groaning with her and he was holding her swaying back and forth i was also really glad that he brought up how he was surprised that she wanted to do the class and it just shows that just because you're a doctor like just because you're an OBGYN doesn't mean you're you're gonna know exactly how to do things like we saw her when she first came into her own room she was like so do i undress now and it's awkward because you're not actually there for all those moments So I think it just shows that a lot of her decisions really did benefit her, and I love seeing that. Now Dr. Little is in labor, and she's unmedicated at this point, so she's in a lot of pain. And she even says it herself. Um, She says, I don't know why I'm not getting epidural, and 
even her mom and Kevin are being so supportive. So it's like, why, why aren't you? Um, but, and she also mentions how tired she is and how she hasn't really slept in months because of her job. And, you know, she's finishing up her residency and she's at the end, she's like, you know what, I'm going to get it. And that's the decision that she decides to go with. And personally, I really do agree with her getting the epidural because she's not really at the best state physically because she is so exhausted and she's been, you know, living this lifestyle for a really long time. And I think in moments like these, you do have to listen to your body, even if you think that, you know, you, you're not going to use epidural and you want to really push through the pain. But I feel like in these cases, if getting the epidural is safer for you and even for your baby, then that's really the best course of action. Yeah. So I'm really glad she made that decision. And moving on to, um, again, Chris's case with Dr. Bookvar. Um, he keeps saying that he doesn't think it's a tumor, um, but ultimately ends up being one. I am no brain surgeon, but the way he takes out pieces in some of his brain, it literally looks like it's just melting. And even Bookvar calls it necrotic tissue. It just looks to the untrained eye like really crazy to see. He says that some of it may be even damaged from all the radiation therapy that he was going through. Obviously, again, I'm not a brain surgeon, but he is in one scene saying how dire the situation is. And in the next scene, he's describing to the camera this new trial that he wants to put him on. And it just seems so involved the way he's explaining it. And after he just had this whole like long-winded um, explanation of what's happening to Chris and like how literally dire the situation is, he's still like trying to push treatment onto him. I mean, you know, obviously I don't know the intricacies of Chris's case, but uh, in my opinion, it just kind of sounds like it'd be under the road for treatment for Chris, which is really sad. Yeah, Chris's case always makes my heart so heavy. Again, it's just hard news after hard news. And even seeing how Bookvar was trying to be optimistic, he's like, I really don't think it's tumor. And then he opens him up and you could see it. Like, I do agree with Jamie. I was like, that does not look normal. Um, that was really, it hit me hard. And then after Bookvar goes to tell the family um, the news of the tumor, but how they got it all out. Um, so this part, it was kind of confusing. I had like conflicting feelings because the way he started the interaction was at, he's like at the end of the hallway. He goes, everything went perfectly. And you could see Laura and she starts like smiling and she's like, oh, okay. And um, yeah, she's smiling. But then Bookvar reaches the family. He's like, so it was all tumor and you could see her just like really get like the life knocked out of her and i do understand why he said everything went perfectly because he survived and the procedure itself went smoothly but i guess the only reason why it really did irk me anyway was just because i saw how laura interpreted it and i don't know what she was thinking but obviously she had some type of happiness in that moment so i think that's the only thing that really hurt me more just to see her um, react like that because you never know how a patient's going to interpret what you're saying or think of or understand what you're saying. So that part kind of got to me a little bit, but it's really hard to see Laura all the time because she just she just has to deal with so much. Yeah, when um, we found out about Chris's tumor, my immediate reaction was, oh my goodness, like poor Laura, like how is she going to take this? Yeah. Because we know that in the previous episodes, like she takes it really hard and, you know, she cries and she really, she really shows how upset she is over this. And again, like we mentioned, it's like bad news, one bad news after the other. Um, and Dr. Bookbar was right in that 
the operation did go smoothly, but I also do feel like he sent a lot of mixed signals and it must have been a lot for Laura to take. It was like a whole roller coaster of emotions and at the end she was just kind of left sad again. Yeah, so I, if I were in her shoes, I would definitely have some mixed feelings too. Yeah, obviously everyone is hoping for um, a better outcome with this whole um, operation. In terms of like the pathology, he's in really good hands, you know, skill wise. So um, I'm really glad that he um, had good outcomes in the moment, but obviously super sad what they found. For Phil's operation, the man who was bodyboarding and Langer was on the beach with him, um, he goes into the operating room and Dr. Mitch is back and he helps um, on the operation and he seems like he's pretty in his element that he's back um you know kind of at full speed um and the whole operation goes well and phil actually says like he he feels like he knew langer for years um and even langer says something like this like caring on both sides like langer for him and the patient um for the doctor they, they even say like oh i hope we could become friends after this and and that was really nice because langer seems like he is so easy to get along with and i'm really glad that this patient in particular had a good outcome. Yeah, for Langer, for Dr. Langer, for himself, the physician who operated on you to say, hopefully it's the beginning of a friendship. For him to say that, I was like, wow, like, in all honesty, I don't know if I could say to my patient, like, yeah, hopefully we become friends, like, yay, like, I don't know, because I could really like you as a person, but I don't know if I would go as far as to say that, just being completely honest, because I don't want to assume anything, because I haven't been in his shoes, but I think it really does show that Dr. Langer is not scared of interacting, connecting, and um, knowing his patients intimately, and I think that's really brave. And now Dr. Little is now fully dilated. Um, There's like a kind of a mini celebration in the room when she is. And she says she's really glad that she got the epidural. Um, I'm obviously really happy that she's satisfied with that decision. Um, And the doctor asks her if she wants to start pushing and she almost cries and is like, I don't know, I don't know, (laughs) which is is just crazy to think about because here she is supporting women through labor um, her whole career. And when it comes to herself, she's like, I don't know, I don't know. Right, and think about how many times she must have asked that question to her own patients, and now you finally get to know what it feels like to be on the other end, and you're like, uh, do I? Like, do I want to? Do I not want to? Do I just let this contraction pass? I think that's, um, it's really cool to see. I think this can also be honestly life-changing for you to be on the other side of your career. Yeah, definitely. When she gives birth, we all know that she's going to be an even better OBGYN because of everything that she went through. Um, personally, I thought that this whole birthing experience was, you know, obviously like very heavy, but I also thought it was kind of funny because you have her whole family in here with her and her mom keeps complimenting her and encouraging her going like, good job, good job, good job. And she's repeating it over and over again. And, you know, they're calling her princess. They're saying outstanding. And the the atmosphere is so intense but and she's like you know pushing and screaming but you know you have her father standing behind the curtains kind of like peeking through the mesh and I just thought that was so funny um he's not allowed to like actually be there but he's just kind of like cheering her on from the little holes on the curtains yeah like everybody looks so happy like even though you know she was pushing and obviously in a lot of pain um her whole family was literally like so excited for the baby to come out and they were just smiling and you know continuously like pouring words of encouragement to her uh i don't know i just thought this part was so funny um kevin was also going to even take a selfie 
he pulled out his phone and the baby wasn't even out yet. And um, you can see Dr. Little saying, you know, like, hey, like the baby isn't even out yet. Like, put that away. Um, yeah, Kevin was definitely having a good time. <laughs> and I love how her mom said, I am not taking anything personally right now because I guess she snapped at her at one point. But in my opinion, I really want my family to understand that too, because I would see women putting up with their moms and their mother-in-laws just talking and talking and talking. And, you know, obviously they're trying to help. They're trying to be helpful. But I knew in their heart they did not want to be rude to them. And, you know, even I was getting annoyed and I wasn't <laughs> the one giving birth. So, you know, if you're ever supporting someone in labor, um, never take their, um, I guess, frustration with you personally, um, <laughs> because it is just such like a high intensity situation. Yeah, honestly, I don't think it's a time to be nice. I mean, if you can't control it, then like, there's no pressure for that. We've definitely seen our fair share of literal like fights break out between the mom and whoever um so I think it was so great that her mom was like I'm not taking anything personally right now and even I think one time she was going to say something or Kevin said something and Dr. Little is like and she just like shuts them up and that was so funny because she's like I cannot do this right now so I do think that um if I'm ever in that situation the people surrounding me would have to have a lot of tough skin because I'm it's so understandable why you would be so irritated especially with what you're going through in that moment. And so Dr. Little, she does such a good job pushing. Everyone is helping her curl up. And they're, like Chloe said, calling her princess. They keep encouraging her. And in that moment, I mean, if it is for you, I think those like verbal affirmations are so helpful because honestly, in that moment, you could really just want to give up. It's pretty common for moms just to be like, I can't do this one. And even Dr. Little, um, she was saying how she couldn't do it anymore after a certain number of pushes and that's understandable but finally her baby is born she's beautiful and she does get to hold her for a few seconds and have direct skin-to-skin contact by holding her and kissing her but then they take her away like really just like after like 10 seconds or so because obviously of her um, birth defect with Noonan syndrome so they have to check on her quicker than most so I don't know about you guys but I kind of saw it, it was like they were like ripping the baby away from her. I mean, her hands kept um, staying attached to the baby's body. So I just felt like it was so painful to see that. I don't know. Like, did you guys think about anything in that moment? Yeah, I noticed that too. But I, I try to understand that, you know, the baby does have an illness. And I guess that's part of the reason why they had to, you know, take the baby away so quickly. But um, I just felt like even from the very beginning of like the birth, the family's going to have to obviously go through so much because of what the baby has. But I don't know, it kind of like signified what was coming next for them when they had to, you know, take the baby away and, you know, in the future, how they're going to raise her and all the, all that because of her disability. Yeah. I, I don't know. I had a lot of mixed feelings about it because we know about the disease and we kind of looked into it and it's going to be a little bit difficult for them to adjust and, you know, parent her in a way. Yeah, um, I was kind of expecting maybe the baby to look, um, I guess, deformed because the way that the syndrome was described to us is that they have like facial deformities, but um, baby looks, you know, healthy and, and really cute. Um, so they named her Ava Rose, which is a beautiful name. I was doing some uh, research kind of after this and they're doing well in California um, after the filming and yeah, she's being raised um, in California. I know it was um, kind of a talking point in the show, like if she was going to raise her in New York City or, you know, ultimately move to California with Kevin. And she did. 
So good for them. Uh, they're a great couple. Moving on to the next scene, Dr. Bafar looks at more scans of Chris, um, the man with the glioblastoma, who they just um, operated on. And it looks like his tumor spread all throughout his brain. And Bukvar calls Laura, his wife, to tell her this news. And you can honestly hear, like, just how tired and exhausted she is. Um, she says that Chris can't even lift his own head or move at all. And when he tells her that the tumor spread to the other side of his brain, she just starts sobbing and saying how she hates this so much. And it's just such a hard thing to listen to. Um, and I think Bukvar hangs up and then he starts crying himself. So, you know, I'm kind of glad that he is coming to his senses a little bit and saying like, okay, well, we need more palliative care instead of, you know, keep trying all these crazy clinical trials, which, you know, maybe for some patients would work, but this man, Chris, has just been through hell and back. So um, it was just a really, really sad scene to watch. Exactly. And I cried when Ava Rose was born. And then this scene came up and then I cried again because I guess it was also just seeing Dr. Bookfar, who we've seen up to this point has been trying to keep his mindset really optimistic and trying to do treatment after treatment and doing all these scans and going to conferences. I guess, I guess I think, I feel like he was even kind of looking for confirmation in a way that his hopes, um, I guess to confirm his hopes of it not being more tumor, but it was exactly the opposite. But when he started crying, I started crying. Well, I even started crying when I heard Laura's reaction. She's really just sobbing in the back and her mother-in-law, Chris's mother, had to take over the conversation and basically um, finish it off and saying that they were really thankful and they were saying goodbye. And when Dr. Bookfar starts crying, it really just hit me that they have to suffer through so much. And it reminds me of something he said earlier in this episode. He says that one of our defense mechanisms is that we just go. So he said that if someone forced him and told him, you have to pause and you have to reflect, then he said he would just really cry all the time. So it's not that doctors have like this super tough skin or they don't care and it's all business and they don't like to get close to patients, but it's really just because they force themselves not to think about it because if they do, who knows how long it'll take for them to get out of it. And they just really have to just keep going. And he says he just has to open another door. So just that type of lifestyle, I feel like is so vigorous and really takes a toll on someone's mindset. But yeah, it was overall just a really hard scene to watch. Yeah, that's very, very true about how, you know, doctors encounter so many unfortunate situations. And if they really sat upon every single one of them, then they might not be able to recover and move on to the next patient. And I remember in the scene, they kind of panned away and Dr. Bookfar kind of walks out of the room and he walks past the windows and he comments about how beautiful the sun looks. And he says that the sun rises the next day. And that's just the way it is. And that's how they have to move on. Um, as much as he tries to keep his emotions separate, he cries and um, doctors just have so much empathy for their, pa uh, for their patients. Um, but there has to be a level of suppression if they want to keep doing their job, which was honestly so unfortunate. And um, kind of in the same vein, uh, Macri starts talking about how there is a lot of concern for burnout and feeling tired among doctors. And she says, for now, I do not feel burned out and I love the clinical work. The people I get to interact with and the stories I hear, I love it. So that's good. That's good for us to hear, you know, um, at Crest. But um, she's so right when she says that it's such a huge problem for physicians and, you know, medical professionals in general, you know, the whole idea of being burned out. 
but you know luckily for her she's escaped that until this point in her career and hopefully she continues to escape it exactly and we'll definitely be discussing a lot more on the topic of physician burnout and trauma especially with what's been happening this year the era of COVID-19 and it's honestly just been a growing issue though so we're going to talk a lot about that in our later episodes but for now we'll talk about how this episode ended so this episode episode eight is the last one of the series it ends with the screen uh there's like a text and it says that chris unfortunately passed away and he was surrounded by his loved ones when he did and i guess just to reflect on the deaths of chris and augie it was just harder for me obviously because they're not like you know fictional characters in TV shows, but I've seen a lot of other documentaries and things of that category. But I think especially it's because of this podcast where we invest a lot of our time and we really try to get to know the patient and we do a lot of thinking too when we prepare for these podcasts. We try to think of our opinions, we try to think in their shoes. So I guess just the fact that we've been saying, oh, Chris did this and Augie did that and Chris's case and this is Augie's update, like just I guess physically saying the names out loud and us just discussing about it and then now knowing that they're no longer with us, I think that's just what's different about this series for me. Yeah, I have to agree with that. I honestly, we don't personally know them, but just the fact that you know, they passed overnight and that they're just not there anymore. I think it's really hard because we know the battle that they faced and we know how hard they fought. Um, They obviously did not go down easy. And it makes you kind of think about how fragile life is and what these doctors have to do to keep them around for as long as possible. So definitely throughout the series, the characters were very personal to us in a very real way even though they're, you know, just inside of our screens. Um, I really do think that Lennox Hill, it it did a really amazing job helping us really get to know the character, not just in the hospital and what their diagnoses are, but also who they are as a parent, as a daughter, as, you know, a son, as a husband. Right. So as we close this Lennox Hill series, like, what do you, do you guys have any, like, final thoughts or as you reflect on, We literally spent, like, I think four episodes discussing all of the series. How do you guys feel? No, I think definitely this um, docuseries will stick with me because basically every single um, medical show that's dramatized is so completely off of reality. And this was the first thing that I have ever seen even remotely real. Um, In my opinion, I know that it was real because you could kind of see the passage of time through, um, like I mentioned, like the holidays and um, different, I guess, seasons. Um, So you know that they were, like, picking, I guess, not random stories, but um, stories where you could follow um, from start to finish the journeys of these patients. And it was just, from the side of the patients, it was amazing to watch, and then also from the side of the providers. And and I'm really grateful that these patients led us into some of their most, like, you know, personal times in their lives, um, you know, basically for entertainment. And, um, yeah, I am forever going to be thinking about this show. Yeah, um, for me too, I felt like this documentary was just too real, but at the same time, so unreal because I didn't under, I didn't know how strong doctors can actually love their patients. And just the fact that they don't, at first, they don't know who they are and it doesn't even matter to them, And but they just have the sole purpose of healing and treating them. Um, I, you know, I don't know, I had my fair share of like encountering doctors 
who seemed like they didn't care about me at all. But I also had doctors who really went through so much for me and my family. And I think that this documentary did a really good job um, portraying that to the audience, the life of these healthcare workers and what it really means to be a doctor, not in terms of, you know, how competent they are, but also in terms of human to human relationship and what it means to live life and um, do the best you can to live that purpose that you have um, for yourself. And in the words of Dr. Little Richardson, she says, my goal is that this series will improve the patient-physician bond and trust. I think that's so important. And for me, seeing these specific providers give that, you know, help to their patients and how caring they were and how awesome they were in, like, literally every situation that we saw, um, I think this series will be a hit and, um, you know, really show to the common person how much doctors go through for their patients. So thank you guys for listening. Be well, and we'll catch you guys next time on Crest Talk.